You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi, I'm your inner dream monologue and you're fast asleep, so I'll be quick. Great job using the Colgate Optic White Overnight Teeth Whitening Pen before bed. When used as directed, it gives you a visibly whiter smile in just seven days. So while I fly and talk to animals, you're removing teeth stains with ease. Sweet dreams. And when you wake up, keep on living life to the brightest. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. Useless information. Hi, I'm Steve Silverman, and you're listening to a classic episode of the Useless Information Podcast. This is one of two podcasts that I recorded that involved the late U.S. President Lyndon Baines Johnson. This one is titled Lyndon Johnson's Camel Driver and is recorded and released back on April 13th of 2011. The other was podcast number 93, which I called the ugliest thing the president ever saw. I have to say both of them are great stories, but if I had to pick my favorite, I think it would be this one. I do want to update you on one little tidbit, however. Near the end of the story, I mentioned that I was unable to determine the main character, that's Bashir Ahmad, I was unable to determine his date of death. Well, thanks to a video that was uploaded to Facebook in 2015 by the U.S. Consulate General in Karachi, I can finally confirm that his date of death was August 15th of 1992. Anyway, enjoy. Welcome to the Useless Information Podcast my collection of fascinating true stories from the flip side history. My name is Steve Silverman, and today's story is titled Lyndon Johnson's Camel Driver. Now, before we jump into uh, the question of the day, I want to quickly mention that I uh, finally set up the Useless Information Podcast page on Facebook, and that will provide you with additional resources uh, related to this podcast. So if you hang on to the end of the podcast, I'll let you know more about it. So let's start with today's question of the day. And for today's question of the day, I thought I'd ask you about the marriage of two products into one. Not just the marriage, but the obvious marriage of two products into one product. So my question for you is very simple. Which two products did Hyman Lippmann decide to put together to make a new product? Was it one, the spoon and the fork to create the spork? Two, adhesive tape and gauze to make the Band-Aid bandage? Three, cellophane tape and the plastic dispenser? Four, glue and paper to make post-it notes, or five, the pencil and the eraser. Again, which two products did Hyman Lippmann decide to put together to make a new product? Was it one, the spoon and the fork to create the spork, two, adhesive tape and gauze to make the Band-Aid bandage, three, cellophane tape and its plastic dispenser, four, glue and paper to make post-it notes, or five, the pencil and the eraser? And as always, I'll provide you with the answer at the end of this podcast. And now for today's story that I've titled Lyndon Johnson's Camel Driver. Now, every year I ask my students who was the president of the United States after John F. Kennedy was assassinated. 
but it's rare that a single student can name Lyndon Johnson. So then I start in reverse order, you know, Obama, Bush, Clinton, and so on. And they can usually figure out the sequence until they get to Lyndon Baines Johnson, LBJ. I jokingly refer to him as our forgotten president, although one could argue that there have been many, many other presidents that are forgotten also. So today's story is about that particular forgotten president, although he was still vice president when the story takes place. So let's do the time warp back to Saturday, May 20th, 1961. And here we find Vice President Lyndon Johnson making a stop in Pakistan as he ended his 13-day, 29,000-mile, six-country goodwill tour of Asia. Now, upon landing at the Karachi airport, Johnson gave, you know, one of those obligatory speeches, and then his motorcade headed out on the 10-mile trek to the Pakistani president's residence. Now, somewhere along the way, uh, Johnson decided to get out and press the flesh a bit, you know, and meet some of the ordinary Pakistani citizens that had lined up along the roadway, you know, in an effort at, you know, what they call people-to-people diplomacy. One of the people that Johnson spoke with, you know, through an interpreter, was an impoverished 48-year-old camel car driver named Bashir Ahmad. And at the end of the conversation, the vice president casually said something like, come and see us, hey, or you all come to Washington to see us sometime, or maybe it was come and visit my country. Unfortunately, the exact words or exchange have been totally lost to history, but the meaning was all the same. Now, we all know this was nothing more than pure Texas politeness, and the vice president probably, you know, he forgot about it by the time he got to maybe the next person. And from what I read, I don't think Bashir took the invitation very seriously either. But somehow the story was picked up by the Pakistani press and word spread like wildfire that he had been invited to the United States. Johnson was clearly backed into a corner here, so he decided to go with, uh, you know, with this idea of bringing Bashir Ahmad to the United States. Now, having the camel driver come to the U.S. could have turned into, you know, either the feel-good story of the year or a total public relations nightmare. And luckily for Johnson, it went much better than anyone could have ever predicted. The story first broke the United States in June of 1961, and the press just couldn't get enough of it. Johnson was quoted as saying, If he comes, we'll show him Washington, and I'll do my best to get him a room at the Waldorf Astoria. Hey, I haven't even been there. Have you? Um, Anyway, he was smart enough not to use government dollars to pay for the trip. That would get him in trouble. Instead, it was privately funded by a group of businessmen that had heard the story in the news. Now, this would be a big, big, a humongous change in the life of this illiterate camel driver. You see, he lived in a one-room ramshackle hut with his wife and four children. Supposedly, nine other children had died during childhood, so it's not a good situation. He also owned no other clothes other than those that he wore on his back. And being a devout Muslim, he made it very clear that he would not wear American-style clothing, nor would he eat American food. But these were just, you know, these were obstacles that were easily overcome. The media storm elevated Bashir to celebrity status in not just the United States, but also back in Pakistan. Believe it or not, armed police were required to protect him against multiple death threats. Bashir's wife and friends uh, expressed concern that he'd be unable to resist the temptations of the United States. They feared that he would eat forbidden pork and drink intoxicating liquor. 
He is also allowed to have up to four wives. So his wife said, and there's a quote, what will happen to my four children and who will support me and feed me if he brings another wife with him? That's the end of the quote. Bashir swore on the Quran that he would not look at another woman during his entire visit. Now for his trip, the Pakistani government provided him with a new set of clothes to wear. And if you happen to see pictures of him in his visit, you will see they gave him some really snazzy Pakistani clothes. You know, fur cap, a long high button coat, very distinguished and baggy pants. It's a kind of uh, clothes you only see in the movies. And having never worn shoes before, he complained that his feet hurt. His plane landed in New York on Sunday, October 15, 1961, and Bashir was met by the vice president. They then flew to Austin, Texas for a two-day visit to LBJ's ranch, which was near Johnson City in Texas, um, which is not named after uh, the president. It's named after a relative of his. Anyway, on Monday, Bashir took his first ride in a saddled horse, although we later learned that he had been on a horse before, not a saddled horse. He was also given a tour of Johnson City, then a tour of the Pedernales Electric Cooperative, and he concluded his first day with a barbecue at the LBJ Ranch. It was VIP treatment all the way. And Tuesday's agenda included being a guest at both Six Flags Over Texas theme park and the State Fair of Texas at Dallas. And it was at the State Fair that Johnson presented Bashir with a shiny new Ford pickup truck that he could take home, not that he knew how to drive. He got to walk through a supermarket for the first time, and he was even given a helicopter ride over Dallas. Then he took his magic flying carpet to Kansas City, Missouri, and that was for a tour of the American Royal Livestock Show and to see the auction of its grand champion steer that was named Maybe Two. This was then followed by a ceremony at the Liberty Memorial, where Bashir received honorary Kansas City citizenship and he was presented with a key to the city. I have to wonder, do those keys really open anything? I don't think so. Anyway, he finished with a 15-minute visit with former President Harry Truman in nearby Independence. Now I have to tell you, I'm getting tired just thinking about doing all this stuff, never mind doing it all. But you're starting to get the picture. Bashir was treated like royalty. And I can keep listing his daily events, but I don't want to bore you to death. So let's jump to what Bashir considered to be the best day of his life. And that was Friday, October 20th. And that's when Mrs. Johnson, a.k.a. Lady Bird, gave Bashir a personal tour of the White House, which ended right in the president's office. And there is where Bashir Ahmad met what he called the man of the world. He met President John F. Kennedy. But he couldn't see into the future. He didn't realize that was not going to be the best day of his life. That was still to come. That's because at the end of the 10-day trip, the vice president surprised Bashir with the news that on his return trip, he would not be going straight home. Instead, the plane would make a detour to allow him to make a once-in-a-lifetime trip to Mecca. And then, just like Cinderella at midnight, the fairy tale ended and Bashir was back at home in the poor slums of Pakistan. But there was one big difference now. Bashir was a big man of the world, and he was treated that way. And he hoped to capitalize on the newfound fame by making both his and other people's lives better.
And initially, it seemed like that would happen. First, he was appointed as director of films for Pakistan's National Films Limited. Then, he was given 15 acres of farmland by a landlord about 100 miles from Karachi. And finally, and best of all, he was given a government job that included a pension when he retired. Things were really looking up for him. But unfortunately, Bashir also faced a lawsuit for failure to pay off his loan for his camel. But the court eventually ruled in his favor. There were hints that the United States government paid off the loan, but that I wasn't able to confirm that. What excited Bashir the most was his brand new shiny Ford pickup truck, and that was scheduled to arrive in mid-January of 1962. You see, having a truck instead of a camel would nearly quadruple his daily earnings. And even though he could not read and supposedly could only write his name, he announced his candidacy for a legislative position in Pakistani politics. Then, in late March of 1962, he met Jacqueline Kennedy, the First Lady, and her sister while they were on a two-week tour of India and Pakistan. Both took a ride on Bashir's camel, but that was met with quite a bit of controversy when they left. That's because it seems that Bashir's camel was actually rented from someone else. Bashir's camel was supposedly in too poor of health for Bashir to bring along, so he was forced into renting one. Now, Bashir cherished the gifts that he brought back to the United States, and he showed them to everyone. They included American clothing, which supposedly he, he was forbidden to wear, a Polaroid camera he had no clue how to use, a transistor radio, which I'm guessing the batteries died on pretty quickly, and of course his most prized possession, which was an alarm wristwatch that LBJ had given to him. But fame came with a big price. He was a one-man traffic jam, so he had to place limits on who could see him. In other words, you needed to make an appointment with one of his secretaries or one of his assistants if you wanted to see him. And this cost money, money that Bashir did not have. The biggest curse of them all was that dreaded 1961 Ford pickup. That's because Bashir could never master driving, so he was forced to hire someone else to do it for him. Initially, he did earn money off the pickup, and that's because he rented the truck and the driver to the United States Embassy, and that gave him a steady income, but that arrangement abruptly stopped the day Lyndon Johnson turned the presidency over to Richard Nixon. Fast forward 10 years after receiving the truck, and you find it sitting in the desert covered with sand and dust with its tires removed. That's because the truck was in need of a major engine overhaul, which of course Bashir couldn't afford, and therefore was of no use to him. He ended up selling it for a few hundred rupees, uh, with a rupee being worth somewhere around 10 cents in American money at the time. Now when Lyndon Johnson died in 1973, Bashir was saddened to receive the news. Uh, but by this time, Bashir was retired and living back in the slums of Karachi. Basically all his fame was gone. So the big question is, is Bashir still alive? And I have to tell you, I searched through every resource that was available to me, and I was unable to make a definitive conclusion. My guess is that he's not. The best I could find was a one-line statement on a webpage that stated he had died sometime during the late 1970s, and that his passing was picked up by nearly all of the Pakistani press. Um, if you happen to know for sure when Bashir died, you know, please let me know. Certainly, I don't have access to uh, Pakistani newspapers, and even if I did, I wouldn't be able to read them. 
And so ends a heartwarming rags-to-riches and then sadly back-to-rags story, although I think Bashir was happy through the whole thing. I think President Kennedy summed up the great public relations success of Bashir's visit to the United States with this comment, quote, I don't know how Lyndon does it. If I had done that, there would have been camel dung all over the White House lawn. That's the end of the quote. Useless, useful. I'll leave that for you to decide. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more— we answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And now for a few words from our retro sponsor. A note of mystery is fine in a drama, but when it comes to choosing a dentifrice, well, then you want to know what to expect. That's why so many people choose Squibb Dental Cream. They know you can taste, feel, and see the refreshing difference. And there's no mystery why. 223 scientific tests behind every tube ensure those distinctive qualities that make Squibb Dental Cream such a pleasure to use. Testing guarantees its mint-frosted tingle, refreshing as the crisp, sparkling sunlight of an autumn day, invigorating as the tang of wood smoke in the air. Testing guarantees the brisk action of Squib Dental Cream that leaves your whole mouth feeling so wonderfully clean. And testing guarantees that the polishing agent in Squib Dental Cream, one of the safest, most effective known to dental science, will help to bring out all the natural sparkle of your smile. So, for your own protection, for greater refreshment, use Squib Dental Cream, one of the great family of Squib products. Taste, feel, and see the refreshing difference. In just a moment, you will hear part two of Shadow of a Doubt. But first, we wish to thank Universal International Pictures for making this story available. They are also the producers of Ernest Hemingway's The Killer. That commercial is from the September 11th, 1946 episode of Academy Award Theater. And as you heard, they were presenting the radio version of Shadow of a Doubt, which just happens to be one of my favorite Alfred Hitchcock movies. Now, Squibb was founded by Edward Robinson Squibb in Brooklyn, New York. Squibb was a U.S. Navy physician who became upset with the poor quality of the medicines being used at the time. And in 1854, he developed an improved method of distilling the anesthetic ether. 
And like many scientists of his day, he gave away his invention rather than, rather than profiting from it. And my students always have a problem with that. They can't say how anybody could do that. Now, Squibb ultimately left the military and set up his own pharmaceutical company in 1858. He died in 1900 from a ruptured blood vessel. Squibb merged with Bristol-Myers in 1989, and that formed the pharmaceutical giant Bristol-Myers-Squibb. And now for a few totally useless, yet totally true tidbits from history. It's time for what I like to call News of the Weird Past. And since we're in the month of April, I thought it'd be a good time to discuss a few April Fool's jokes from the past. And they go way back. And our first tidbit is dated April 2nd, 1910, where it's reported that St. Petersburg, Florida Councilman G.W. Blodgett and his friend H.A. Farmer were frightened by some pranks pulled by some neighborhood kids. It seems that they were walking home around 10 p.m. after Mr. Blodgett attended a council meeting and they saw a big snake crawling across their path. Both men were startled and they began to run. The snake continued in pursuit until the boys jumped out of their hiding spot and blurted, Ha ha, April Fool. Of course, the snake was no snake at all. It was simply a big piece of rope tied at one end to a thinner piece of string. And as the boys pulled, the snake wiggled across the sidewalk. Mr. Blodgett appreciated the joke and had no hard feelings against the boys. He claimed that it was the best April Fool's prank ever. Our second tidbit was reported on April 2nd, 1935, but I have to tell you it's been reported on many times before and many times after. Supposedly, more than a thousand people were being tricked annually into calling the New York Aquarium at Whitehall 4, 1560, asking for someone named Mr. Fish. As a result, the phone company was forced to change the aquarium's phone number every year on April 1st. The original New York Aquarium, where the prank started, was closed in 1941, and that was for for construction of the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel, but that didn't stop the prank. It had already spread to other cities and other attractions. For example, in 1959, the Vancouver Aquarium decided to have a bit of fun with the calls, and the staff kept count of what names people chose to play these jokes on their colleagues. There were 28 calls for Mr. Bass, 26 for Mr. Trout, 20 for Mr. Fish, and 17 for Mr. Salmon. Then there's a story from 1979 that reported the zoo's dread April 1st. Uh, It is estimated that about 60,000 calls were received each year asking for such people as Mr. Deer, Mr. Fox, Mr. L. E. Fant, and Mr. Al Egator. And our last tidbit dates to April 1st, 1965, where it's reported that the BBC brought in a scientific expert to demonstrate the amazing new powers of television. The professor fed coffee beans and then onions into a very complicated piece of machinery while explaining that the equipment would break the different scents into molecules that could be transmitted through the airwaves. This new technology was called, get this, smell-o-vision, and they told viewers to stand about six feet from the TV sets to get the best results. And since this was just a test of the new system, viewers were encouraged to call to report how well it worked. Soon, sniffers were calling from all around claiming that they could smell the coffee and that the onions made their eyes tear. 
Now, as an added uh, little factoid, I wanted to mention an ad that appeared in the April 1927 issue of the Eugene Register Garden. It read as follows, as a quote, The best April Fool joke any man in Eugene can play on his wife would be to swipe all of the dirty clothes on Monday and send them to us and let the wife think they've been stolen until we return them all fresh and clean and sweet smelling. That's the end of the quote. That ad was placed by Domestic Laundry, and if you want to call them, their phone number was 252. Don't think that's in existence anymore. And now the answer to today's question of the day. And I asked which two products did Hyman Littman decide to put together to make one brand new product? Was it one, the spoon and the fork to create the spork? Two, adhesive tape and gauze to make the Band-Aid bandage. Three, cellophane tape and its plastic dispenser. Four, glue and paper to create post-it notes. Or five, the pencil and the eraser. Well, I hope you chose choice five, the pencil and the eraser. Hyman Lippmann of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania is credited with combining the pencil and the eraser into one single product. His patent was issued March 30, 1858 for the combination lead pencil and eraser. In 1862, Littman sold off his invention to Joseph Reckendorfer for $100,000, which doesn't seem like a lot, but adjusted for inflation, that would be about $2 million U.S. dollars today. Reckendorfer almost immediately turned around and sued pencil maker Faber for patent infringement. He lost. In 1875, the Supreme Court invalidated the patent because the combination of the two was considered to be an obvious invention. Reckendorfer died on July 7, 1883 at his home in Long Branch, New Jersey at the age of 46, and my initial thoughts were that he was financially ruined by that $100,000 investment in the pencil-eraser combination, but I was wrong. He wasn't ruined. His obituary stated that he was the president of Eagle Pencil Company, one of the largest pencil manufacturers in the world at the time. He was the first to use American cedar and pencils and the first to invent a mechanical pencil. But my favorite patent that Reckendorfer received was for a, get this, combined pencil point protector, twine cutter, and whistle. So now that we've reached the end of my storytelling, let me tell you a little bit about my uh, Facebook page that I've set up for the podcast. If you log into Facebook, all you need to do is search for the Useless Information Podcast, and the page should pop up. Then when you go to the page and click on the Like button, you'll be able to see some of the folders that are not visible uh, if you don't do so. Uh, now, this is a work in progress, but you'll see that I have there some of the articles that I used uh, in researching the story. There's also a link to the uh, retro sponsor radio show where I lifted the commercial from. And of course, there's some comments that I make about the episode. You know, how did I research this? How did I come across a story? Some of the difficulties maybe I encounter and just some general comments looking back on the preparation for recording this show. There's also a discussion board that you can join in and uh, not that uh, anyone has done so yet, but uh, you can join in and make some comments about the show. The only thing I would do is uh, hope that you keep the language sort of clean and be nice to everybody. I know some people get kind of crazy in these discussion boards, so please try to keep it uh, clean and you know don't wander off the topic too much. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed today's story on Bashir Ahmad as well as our question of the day on the pencil eraser combination that seems so obvious. Listening to our retro sponsor from Squib 
dental cream, and of course the news of the weird past tidbits uh, from April Fool's Day. If you'd like to read more true stories just like these, please be sure to get a copy of one of my books. They're Einstein's Refrigerator and Lindbergh's Artificial Heart. Both are written by me, Steve Silverman, and of course they're available from your local bookseller online and from your local library. If for some crazy reason you'd like to contact me, simply drop me an email at useless at steve.silverman.name. That's useless at steve.silverman.name. You can visit my website at uselessinformation.org, and now you can go to Facebook and you can contact me that way. Uh, there is a contact uh, folder there that you can click on, and it gives you a form to fill out to send uh, a, re a reply or a question or whatever to me. Uh, now, usually I would ask you to uh, log into iTunes and leave some positive comments at this point, but I'll skip that this time. I do thank everybody for doing that. This time, I'd appreciate if you could go to the Facebook page and uh, show that you have some interest in it because it took me a while to do. And if I see that a lot of people are using it, I'll continue to do so in the future. Anyways, thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in the next time. Bye. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day, there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. So listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast.